Sketchy Room at the Menominee Public Library. Welcome to episode 18 of TED Talks, the library's official podcast series. I'm Chuck Backus, alongside library director Ted Stark, and we invite you to pull up a seat, relax for a few minutes, and catch up on what's going on around town. And Ted, it's already started to snow. Yes, and it was very heavy. It was brutally heavy. It was wickedly heavy. What did we get? Eight <laughs> inches, ten inches of that stuff? Yeah, and it was all water. And yeah. and for people outside of Wisconsin, when you shovel ten inches of snow, you don't go out with a shovel after it's all stopped and move ten inches of snow because you can't. So what you do is you approach it a little bit at a time. And we're right. out there the day before Thanksgiving. It's 1.30 in the morning, and I'm shoveling <laughs> snow. And right next door to where we live on Main Street, there's a, a wonderful little establishment. And three of the employees, young people, just, just coming into life, late teens, early 20s, they come out, and the snow is falling, and they immediately start throwing snowballs at each other. And they're laughing and cavorting and just having a wonderful time being youthful and young. And one of the snowballs hits me right in the back. <laughs> and, of course... The, the young man who threw it immediately comes up and he says, oh, man, I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I didn't mean to. And I, and I said, no, no, don't you dare apologize because you've reminded me of something. You, and you only have a limited amount of time to do this. You look at this snow and you see snowballs and snowmen and snow angels. <laughs> and all I see is a, an obstacle to overcome. And I'm grateful to you for reminding me about the beauty of snow and the fragility of youth. You enjoy this snow. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, yeah, okay, Boomer. So, okay, Boomer. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I said, fine. Good luck finding a house, kid, and thanks for funding my retirement. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready for winter. I busted a snow shovel already. Already. Wow. Takes me no Jeez. time at all. It's good to see you, Ted. I haven't you seen too. you since, what has it been, October? Oh, it was October, yeah. We did the Chippewa Valley Book Festival. Well, yeah. we've saved up and we've got a great one today. Yes, we do. I am, boy, we, we do some programming that ties in well with the community, that ties in well with the nation, ties in, but this one, we tie in with national history, we tie in with local history, and we tie in with the library itself. You've got us a winner today. Yeah. When you Would you introduce our guest? Sure, be glad to. Uh, today we have filmmaker uh, Rob Barros, and uh, he's going to talk about his new new film about the architect John Howe. And uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful film, and we're going to be showing it um, later this afternoon at the library, 1 p.m. And um, it, uh, the, uh, Howe is a, was the architect of our building, so, you know, it's really significant for us. And uh, so, Rob, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You're, Good to have you here. Yeah, yeah. So um, before we get into the film, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into filmmaking to start? I'm a second-generation filmmaker. Uh, my father is a fairly well-known video editor in the Twin Cities, um, an engineer. Uh, he, he actually turned down George Lucas to be his editor. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. He's, he's very talented. Um, and uh, I went through college as an archaeologist, or came out the other end of college as an archaeologist, and um, 
for and ended up working for Wisconsin Historical Society, oh, mapping okay. the shipwrecks of Lake Michigan and Lake Superior. Oh, oh. wow, that was you. Yeah. Uh, I was one of them. What <laughs> amazing work! Thanks. Yeah. It was it was it was fascinating work. I can't begin to imagine. And um, it's funny because there's a tie-in uh, to this How film. Twenty years really? later, after all of that, um, that got me access to the ar- part of Wisconsin Historical Archives. Wow. Uh, that I wouldn't have, probably wouldn't have had otherwise. Pretty restricted use on that, huh? It was. And um, it was a lunch break, and the archivist, uh, an elderly gentleman, came in and relieved the kid that was at the counter. And so I submitted my request a second time, and he looked up from his desk, and he said, you used to work here. (laughs) (laughs) And I was pretty shocked, and I said, you know, uh, that was about 15 years ago. Yeah, and um, he said, "Let me see what I can do," and wow. that led to um, original research in this film. Ironically, yeah, wow. So, so the the John Howe film. How how did you decide on on John Howe? I mean, he's not actually. I mean, he's kind of a secondary figure. Um, you know, um, I volunteered. Uh, with the Frank Lloyd Wright Building Conservancy Conference in 2000 that was held in Minneapolis. And from that came two very, very important friendships. Uh, One was uh, with a guy named Larry Martin, who was an apprentice at Taliesin between 1950 and 54. And he ended up becoming my best friend from that experience. And then I also met Mrs. Howe at that conference. And uh, volunteering as the photographer, I was asked to... Somebody said, oh, you need to take pictures of these two people and one happened to be Mrs. Howe and an old acquaintance of hers, wow. an old uh, former Wright client. Hmm. And, um, nine years later, um, when I asked her, I, I sent an inquiry to her to see if I could do the film. She said, hmm, your ears must be ringing. I threw your business card away last week. <laughs> <laughs> nine years later. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. Yeah. That's that's how it happened. Wow, because um, in two thousand, uh, how would have been how passed away in ninety six seven. Yep, ninety seven. Yeah, so so he would have been just shortly gone, and then and that. So what about um, when when you were at this conference? Um, who who introduced you to how? Did you know about how before then? Or? No, I didn't. Um, the very so the coordinator of the conference sent me around to all of the Frank Lloyd Wright buildings in the state. Uh, There were 11, and so my job was to photograph them pre-conference. And in the course of that, one of the buildings I was sent to was John Howe's home, Sankaku, um, in Burnsville. And that was my first in-depth experience with John Howe. Wow. my wife describes that house as being sculptural. Really? And she's an art teacher. Ooh. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a stunning home, and I've never seen one quite situated to its land setting quite so well as that. Wow. Yeah, and that's a big deal with, that was a big deal with how was the setting of the land. Yes. And we should say, I guess, that after how left Talaisen, after having been there, what, 35 years or something? Or, Thereabouts, yeah. Yeah. He he started a practice, his own practice in in Minneapolis. Right. 
Uh, no, uh, he went to San Francisco. Oh, that's right. That's right. He did. And okay. um, to get away, he didn't have he didn't have the launching the name recognition in the launching platform to just go out and be successful on his own. Any new business takes a while to to come together. And uh, so he went to work for Aaron Green in uh, San Francisco okay. in 1964. And he helped Green delineate and build out uh, Marin County Civic Center. Okay. And he was there for three years. And he decided at that point, if I'm ever going to do this on my own, I need to move. And what clients he had were in the Twin Cities area. So they moved there. Okay. Why don't we... Um just to give the rest of our discussion kind of a foundation, why don't you give us kind of a brief um, history of how? I mean, sure. Sorry. He was uh, born in 1913 in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, he grew up with in a neighborhood uh, with Walter Burley Griffin and homes half a block away from his birth site. So Griffin being a, a draftsman for Wright, all of a sudden he was indoctrinated to this from from literally from his birth. Right. Um, he, by the time he was 13, he was already putting together a scrapbook and getting access to these Griffin homes and doing perspective drawings <laughs> and collecting scraps from Wright and what about Wright and what have you. And uh, as, as he was finishing high school, he was introduced to an Evanston architect, uh, Charlie Morgan, who was an associate of Frank Lloyd Wright's, and Morgan took him under wing, and they attend, he attended a lecture of Wright's in Chicago, and between May and October, he went from high school student to apprentice. Wow. In the, in the founding class at Taliesin in 1932. Because yeah. Wright, that's when Wright started this, his school, uh, that he was in the inaug- inaugurating class of that. Yeah, um, kind of daunting. I mean, to, to think of architecture is one of the first things to take a hit when the economy tanks. And you yeah, think yeah. of 1932 in the yes. midst of the Depression. What was he thinking in the sense of starting a career as an architect at that point in time? Yeah. Um, but he knew he Wright was perhaps the most famous architect in the world, uh, arguably anyway. And uh, he knew what he wanted. And he presented... Um, a scrapbook, the scrapbook that he had been collecting since he was 13. And um, when asked about it, he said, oh, Mr. Wright didn't think much of it. Ironically, it was the last thing I saw in my original research for the film. And it, for me, it was, not only did it come full circle, but it was like dropping a bomb on what I had learned. It was just, it was all there in that scrapbook. Wow. From when he was a kid. Yeah. Wow. wow, and I mean, he was just very, very focused and dedicated, and he knew yeah. what he wanted from, say, age eight. Well, from your film, I mean, you get the that that when Taliesin started, um, I mean, it was like boot camp. It reminded me. I mean, okay. the, the, everybody was expected to do all this, these chores and work and stuff, and it, it looked like a, kind of a. It certainly wasn't an easy life. No, no, um, and I think. How came to it with? Uh, uh, he came to it with um, naturally, in a way. Yeah. Um, right, being so notorious back in the teens and twenties, um, 
his father was very much against his participating yeah. with Frank Lloyd Wright. He was notorious. Right. His mother, conversely, uh, had been a student at Hillside Homeschool. The, the first buildings that Mr. Wright designed were for his aunts at mm. Hillside Homeschool. And um, so his mother went to school with Frank Lloyd Wright's son, Lloyd Wright, um, and she knew what that experience was about. Mm. And um, so she encouraged him. His father did anything but encourage him. And right. that, I think, lended to his fitting in in the Taliesin culture yeah. so yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah, that you paint that really well in your film. Um, that early that early period, and um, I mean that really struck me because you got original footage there, black and white footage um, that uh, from Taliesin Al- and from Alden Dow. Yeah, uh, Al- Alden Dow was uh, the son of Dow Corning Glass, um, and so he had a camera, and that's why that early 1934 footage exists. Right. Wow. And and you know at that time how would have been what eighteen nineteen right? Yeah, when he went when yeah. he went. Yeah. Um, kind of courageous almost. I mean, to, he knew what to, he wanted. Yeah, he knew he must have. Yeah. Um, and that uh, comes forward very quickly when you start looking at the history. Um, he would his original chores. So he was given the opportunity to attend Taliesin. Uh, $500 plus, uh, keeping the fires lit in all of the, <laughs> the furnaces and yeah. the fireplaces. Yeah. And, um, he repeatedly recants that, you know, Mr. Wright soon didn't have a warm bath. That the, the, the <laughs> boiler was cold. And yeah. he also, uh, there's a twist on that, that he would keep embers lit. He would, he would, he'd go over to a fireplace and he'd take the logs off, but keep the embers warm and then whenever mr wright would approach he would put the logs back on and get the in that way he didn't have to haul as much firewood Ah. it didn't take him away from the drafting room as often okay tricky yeah well you mentioned that that how knew what he wanted he also as i understand knew what he didn't want and what he did not want was military service is that (laughs) something you can speak to and the influence that it would have had on Howe? Uh, sure. Um, Howe was one of, I think, 2,200 people jailed for being a conscientious objector to World War II. And mo- a lot of them in the upper Midwest were kept at Sandstone Penitentiary. Um, the letters, pre just pre uh, that incarceration in 1943, May of 43. Uh, between he and his father, they were very contentious. And it's, why don't you just um, basically submit and go do public service, be an ambulance driver, be a whatever it is needed. And I think Wright's influence on how kept him very um, focused and and. Um, contentious, if you will, with the law. Not, not to. It was an ideological thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he just didn't see the the lot at that point. The logic in going to war. How long was he there? 
three and a half years. Wow. So September of 46. That is a long time to stew on your convictions. It is. But he, that seemed to be kind of a, um, and you bring this out really well in the film, that period seems to be a time when he, he did a lot of creative things there and, and almost like came into his own or something in a way. Very much you wanna, so. Yeah, you want to talk about that a little bit? Without the direct daily influence of Frank Lloyd Wright on him, uh, he was allowed to, let me, I have to back this up just a little. In sure. 1943, uh, or sorry, 34, um, apprentices started giving Mr. Wright uh, gifts at Christmas and his birthday, which was June 8th. And so they were called box projects, and every apprentice would contribute drawings to a box that was a gift to Mr. Wright. And the boxes themselves were actually built, designed and built by the apprentices. So somebody's design was used as the pattern, and somebody would build it and what have you. And Mr. Wright, yeah. Well, at this time, um, was Howe uh, the chief draftsman then at this time? Uh, writes. Howe became chief draftsman in 1937. 37. So okay. the only project, so the, the, the fellowship started in 1932, roughly September, October. Right. Um, Henry Klum was the chief draftsman, and there were four or five draftsmen from okay. Wright's prior practice, and they quickly, not being paid, because this was the Depression, <laughs> right? Uh, they and all of a sudden, students were coming in and paying for the experience to be there. That must have been a pretty shocking thing, yeah, for them. And so to be working as an architect or a draftsman and not getting paid, and yet here Wright is getting paid by the students, um, was an uncomfortable situation. Yeah. And yeah, so. Sure. They started by 1934. They were trickling out, and the students were trickling in, so to speak, and taking more and more responsibility. And um, in 1933, there was the Willie House. That was the first modern Frank Lloyd Wright house. And 1936 was uh, Falling Water came on the boards. Very famous, yeah. right? And that was the second modern house that Frank Lloyd Wright designed. And that was a response to European critique of architecture at the time that they were saying, Mr. Wright was a has-been and he said, well, I'll show you and out yeah. comes falling water. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we got, we set that, I'm sorry, back to, <laughs> back to the uh, war yeah. period and the boxes, the creative boxes. Sure. Um, Mr. Wright oftentimes said that John's, box project contributions were some of the best. And they were stunning. The very first one was an alternate rendition of Taliesin. And that was a scheme one and two. Uh, just like there was, a, there was a first scheme that may have been rejected and the second scheme was adopted. Um, the first scheme for John's first box project was an alternate Taliesin. And it's mm. it's all there. And the house, the second project, or the second scheme is colored, where the, the first one is just in black and white. The second one is colored mm. and all the palette of John Howe's materials is there. You can look at that drawing in 1934 and see this library wow. in it as well. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that followed him throughout his entire career. Okay. And he formulated that between the ages of 18 and 20. Oh. And uh, I can't tell you how many circular stories there are about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, and in the and then to circle back, while he was in, serving time in prison, he did a lot of drawings. That, some of them were fat. I mean, he did a car, kind of a RV right. car, right, and yeah. some other stuff. And uh, Yeah, he drew from his own life. Uh, yeah. They were traversing back and forth between Taliesin in Spring Green and Camp, or Taliesin West, in Arizona in the summers, or falls and springs. Um, he formulated a shopping mall. Yeah, I saw uh, it. The shopping mall is kind of interesting. Called the Big Project. Yeah. Um, an airport that preceded Dulles by 10 years, uh, easily. Yeah. Um, a concrete blockhouse, which I think has an interesting reference of uh, being in the big house. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, oh gosh, um, uh, he... There were over 400 houses drawn in that three-and-a-half-year period, single-handedly. Wow. Um, The variety. He would do a scheme for a box project entry would be a scheme of, say, six or seven or eight block concrete block houses or plywood houses or... uh, It it just goes on and on, and that's something I try to... um, bring out in the film in one particular sequence of the film yeah yeah um so uh i'm curious why your film isn't like 17 hours long <laughs> it could be yeah it could be. what a fascinating topic how how do you edit that down that would be like selling your children <laughs> um that's a good question. You really have to go with... It always comes back to the drawings, no matter what. The drawings, if you look at them, are very evocative. They, there's so much depth in them. And anytime I have any doubt or, or a question... I would continue, I just go back and look at the drawings. And somehow, it just, it finds itself. There's a continuity in those drawings. You can look at those drawings from the early 30s, and you can look at the drawings in after he retired. And in the 1990s, he was doing, he went back to doing landscape drawings. And uh, along Mr. Wright's geometric simplifications of landscapes and it's still there um the drawing the drawings tell all so to speak amazing yeah so did he meet someone i kind of got an idea that he met one of his fellow inmates uh in in the prison ended up working with him later is that right and did a lot of work they they became best friends for life did they Um, bill bill crevice um, was also a conscientious objector to World War II and in Sandstone. Um, he was, because they weren't, they weren't typical criminals. They were, yeah. 
they were given some liberties, and so they there were weaving classes in the prison. There were how was given the ability to teach drawing class. He worked in the library, <laughs> and um, he was given the opportunity to teach draft, drafting and drawing classes, mm-hmm. and that's where they met. And uh, oh my gosh, Bill! There were John designed half a dozen houses for Bill over the years. Um, when John was trying to construct things for his homes or clients' homes, uh, Bill and his brother owned apartment buildings together. And, uh, one brother was the, uh, office guy and did all the financials. And Bill was the practical guy who did the repairs and what have you. And, um, had the building and the construction yeah. know-how. And so... He's actually in the film. Is he in the film? Correct. Yeah, right. Uh, he was my first interview. Yeah. yeah. I, I knew I had to catch him. How did you decide on um, who to interview in the film? I knew I had to interview Bill Krebis, and I okay. knew him from that same time period in 2000. Um, then I asked Mrs. Howell, right. just straight up, and um, she pointed me to Bob and Ann Willow, um, here in Menominee, um, she suggested uh, another couple in the Twin Cities, um, and Louis Wheely, and um, uh, one other person I can't right off the top. Of, it's not coming to mind, but okay. I interviewed those first. Yeah, yeah it was. Um, you know, in those early days, it seemed it seemed like um, I mean, Mrs. Howe had to put up with a lot of stuff because they were like, uh, you know, it was roughing it. Uh, you know, they'd go and then just tripping back and forth, you know, from uh, Taliesin uh, North to Taliesin West. Um, you know, I, but she didn't, she seemed pretty much into it, right? Uh, or not? It's an interesting <laughs> question. Um, it really was a commune. If you yeah. if you look at it yeah. in in many ways, in it was a commune before communes were communes, right. um, thirty years before. Mrs. Wright was known to engineer the relationships that occurred at Taliesin, and I think John had a certain amount of verve, if you will, and didn't want to be dictated to in that way. Yeah. And he found Lou Sparks, uh, who became Lou Howe. Um, Lou was a lot like a combination of his own parents. Mm. She worked at uh, Chautauqua's doing plays. And um, that was something his parents, that's how his parents met. And so I think that was a good combination. And she was if you will, uh, not from the ranch. Right. And so he, they could develop a confidence and a trust that yeah. couldn't be had in that commune setting. Yeah. Cause they were, they had a little, um, kind of a cabin at Telly's in North or the one in spring green right. that didn't have heat or electricity for a while. Right. Correct. And then they, <laughs> they had like, uh, the picture I saw or the, was it a picture or a drawing in the film of the, the little kind of hut they had in um, West, or Taliesin West was John rustic. drew. <laughs> yeah, uh, John made a habit of drawing homes for himself, 
Um, if you look in the hills to the north of Taliesin, the east of Taliesin, the south of Taliesin, there are there are drawings for homes for himself on all of those hills. Wow. Um, there are three or four homes that he designed for himself in Arizona. So that was just part and parcel of what yeah. he did. Yeah. You've, you're giving us such wonderful insights into to John Howe. Can you, can you give us a little insight into the, the building we're sitting in right now? I'm, I'm looking over at a, an architectural drawing of the Menominee Public Library. For the folks listening at home, tell us a little bit of something that we don't know about our library. The materials that I see in this library are the same materials that he used in his own home and occur in a number of his buildings. He just, it, it all, it all fits together. The raked eaves, the, the concrete block that is here, um, the clelistry windows, the, those were part and parcel. He used them repetitively in so many designs, but he reformulated them and that, that was natural to him. And so it, it just, it flows outwards of, of knowing those materials. Is this, um, is this his only public building? I mean, like governmental public building? I know there are churches, but, um, there's a church in Minnesota. There is a forestry, a forestry building on uh, one of the UW campuses. I can't remember which one. Okay. Um, there is a dance. Oh, the dance center down in in right. Tucson. Um, but this is really, I mean, for one that he would that he did for like a municipality or a government center. Right. This is the, the only one. This is the only one. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's fascinating. If you look at a, a Carnegie Library, it immediately says, "Hi, I'm a Carnegie Library." It has that that functional aspect to it, and they're they're wonderful structures. We are not in a Carnegie Library. It is so much more. I I don't think residential is the right word, but it's so much more personal. I I I don't know the right words for it. I liken going into a John Howe building as almost the same as putting on your favorite cardigan sweater. Oh, that's good. I like that. (laughs) That makes sense to me. They're comfortable. There's an intimacy. They're not, they're not pretentious. Um, but, but, but more than anything, I think that's something he distilled and refined from Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright's, uh, prairie era. There was always a intimate speaking area near a fireplace. Um, John Howe took that feeling, but extended it to the entire building. Yeah, we had, um, I've got early drawings of this building on this site. Um, you know, before they probably ran into budgetary problems, I wasn't around in 86, but, um, you know, that's pretty common. You know, you build more than, or you draw more than you end up building, but that are much larger, cover much more of the site. There was a, um, a third floor uh, mezzanine, 
area with big clear story windows up above. There was a large fireplace, uh, big fireplace, uh, just just much. And then the the entryway um, to the lobby was like an art gallery. It was much longer, extended into the building, like you've walked down it on either side were, you know, display areas for stuff. So, and then I know probably, and then he, I mean, it still looked, the shape was still the same, but it was just larger and there was more to it. You know, it would have been great to see it. I mean, real. But then, so I'm sure that, you know, well, we can't quite afford that, so it got trimmed back. And But right. still wonderful. But, I mean, you know, I look at that and I go, wow. Um, you know, that was the dream phase, maybe, or something. I don't know. Or what. Tell you what, I can model it up in SketchUp for you. Can you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's how the concrete blockhouse ended up in the film. Um, I took John's drawings. I put it into SketchUp, modeled it out, turned that over to, and created a basic film, turned it over to a professional SketchUp modeler. He took it the next step and really advanced it so that it was computer uh, animation ready. And then I turned that over to an animator, and he combined, I had picked out music for it, and he took those two things and then he added, the animator added not only the, the texture and fleshing it out, but um, his, he came up with the notion of presenting that building within the course of a day from sunrise to sunset. Oh. Oh and, and it really, while I had delineated out the basic movie, they really, they took it somewhere where I hadn't quite had gone. Yeah, it was pretty neat. It is. Yeah. But did um, they have a lake? We've got a lake. Yeah. You do have a lake, and it's a beautiful lake. There is another John Howe house on the lake here. No. Yeah. Yes? Seriously? Yeah. The... Why am I just finding this out? <laughs> There's a couple, two, right? Two? John. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. The Trimble residence. Willows and the Trimble, old Doc Trimble's residence. Oh, my. Yeah. Well, there it's went... on the north side of the lake. <laughs> there went my reputation as somebody who knows his way around town. Thank you. Yeah. Um, there was also a design for the library early on, an alternative site that was on the other side of the lake, um, and you would have been able to see it, just the top of it, basically, the roof line uh, from Main Street that went down and then kind of projected out right over the lake and it's a stunning design it is very stunning and everybody time every every time i've shown that drawing because you can see it online even i mean i'll bring it up and and people will go holy cow you know <laughs> that is cool the comment but, that i keep getting uh invariably oh that's a frank lloyd wright building the original library scheme for here in Menominee would have been mistaken as a Frank Lloyd Wright library. No yeah. doubt. Yeah. Um, and I, I keep bumping into people that say, oh, that's a Frank Lloyd Wright building. When no, it can't be. There's only, say, 74 in Minnesota. And where is it? And they'll tell me where it is, and it can't be. Yeah. And, and more often than not, if somebody mistakes a building as being a Frank Lloyd Wright building where there shouldn't be one, Odds are it's an apprentice building, and right. if it's in Minnesota or Wisconsin, it's probably a John Howe building. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would have been awesome to see. You had uh, just the, 
that view from the main street going by, just what you could see of it was was um, it it'd make you want to go in. I'll right? bottle that one for you. Will you? <laughs> I would. Yeah, yeah, that is that is cool. And then it kind of projected out almost over the lake. Wow. Like um, like a bow of a boat or something almost. It's in the credit roll of the film at the end. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. To watch for that. Yes. <laughs> yes. And we do have the film here, by the way, for people that are interested to check out. Um, you know, so uh, if they ever want to, it's a it's a wonderful film. And let's um the the soundtrack. I was in queuing it up uh, this morning to make sure everything was running right, the sound system and everything. And it's a wonderful soundtrack um, by the keyboardist from Yes, the group Yes. Yeah, which is a great group. Oh <laughs> yeah. How, how did you get that, or how? Um, I want. I'll admit he was a second choice. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, oh man! <laughs> Whoa! Who was? Um, and I, and I, I don't. Who was first choice? Yo Yo Ma or something? Well, or? so the only way to make a film about an organic architect is right. organically make the film. And so I tried to get a Minnesota musician, and um, he had dystonia, and so his he could no longer play. He was a right-handed guitar player, and he's taught himself to play left-handed. And all of his music is owned by a label, and it's expensive and inaccessible and what have you. And so then I went back to music. Uh, for instance, um, it, was, it was a real challenge to make this film in the sense that Ken Burns had done a monolith documentary on Frank Lloyd Wright. And mm. so I wanted something that would serve as a compa- I mean, Frank, uh, you, accomplice is a really good term for, for John mm. Howe. And it was coined by Wright. Um, and I looked at, I wanted to make a film that was complimentary to Burns's, but I didn't want to make a Ken Burns film. Um, and, so who of the musicians that I knew, loved, respected, whatever you want to call that, as, you know, as, a, as a music fan and junkie, um, the, immediately came to mind Rick Wakeman. Yeah. Uh, he had done a lot of nature uh, in his post-Yes career. He's done a lot of um, new age, sure. natural music. And so I looked him up and I found a contact. <laughs> and I sent him a, a message and um, he, he answered, well, surprisingly. I, I didn't think he would and uh, didn't expect him to. And he said, send me the project and, or send me what you got. And so I did. And he responded. He responded with three CDs, two and a half hours worth of music. Oh my gosh. Well, it's, it's a gorgeous soundtrack. It really is. And it, I mean, it really adds to the film. And uh, it, I, and it's classical, but it's new age, and yeah. it, it it fits with Frank Lloyd Wright. Yep, and Ken Burns's music, but the classical music that Ken Burns selected for the Frank Lloyd Wright documentary. But it's so wonderful. And yep. when I would go photograph, I would on the drive, I would listen to the soundtrack for the right. film, and to get myself in the mood of how to move the cameras and you know that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, he, Rick, Mr. Wakeman is awesome. <laughs> what an incredible gift to a project like that. That's amazing. It was. 
Yeah, so this took you a while. I remember um, I went back and I looked at emails and stuff uh, that you and I, was it 20, I want to say 2010 or something like that, that you came here and yep. I let you in really early in the morning because yep. you wanted to get the morning light yep. on the building. And then we spread out drawings on the floor and, and yeah. it took a lot of footage. But um, so from 2010 to, I mean, it took a while, didn't it, to get this? Well, it took four years okay. to get the basic film fleshed out. Um, in 2014, I had an hour, 22 minutes of the film built and uh, had it outlined to be a two-hour film. And uh, my five-year-old son was diagnosed with liver cancer. Yeah, it was... And after a four-month struggle, we lost him. And Yeah, that was tragic. I just had to put the yeah, film away. I couldn't work on it because when I would shoot B-roll, he would go with me. Yeah. And so I just had to get some space. Yeah. And um, a couple friends, uh, Eric O'Malley and uh, Bill Scott from Organic Architecture and Design, started nudging me. Yeah. And uh, about a year, it's two years ago now. And... Um, took us another from there they said is it time yet and yeah. provided the emotional support i needed to get back into it and um in four months i had the film finished so oh. so you had all this research and you had all this footage interviews and stuff how did you decide what to, how to put it together and what to leave out and leave in because or, or is there a director's cut you know i was gonna yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, not yet, but there there will be. There will be? Okay. Um, it was a pretty simple process in that you can't make a film about an organic architect without... The drawings don't flesh out John Howe's personality. No. And so I knew that that was the first step. That's the thing that you can do so well with film that you can't do with printed materials. The drawings tell stories, but they don't tell, they don't reveal John Howe's personality. And yeah, you really made him flesh and blood for me. That's, that's, I, um, you know, the drawings were great, but, but you really did that uh, well, I thought. So. The, the first archivist at the University of Minnesota is in the film. His name is Al Lathrop. Uh, he was John's friend. And in the course of ascensioning Howe's drawings, he chose to record two audio interviews with John. And that was the start. Yeah. And so I listened to those and determined, oh, wait, this is, this is pretty substantial. One of the tapes had a ground short loop in it, so it was unusable. Uh. And it was buzzing in the, in the recording. And where there's, one, where there's smoke, there's fire. I assumed that there was more interviews out there. And so I started advertising the fact in the film community, in the John Howe community, Frank Lloyd Wright community, that, I, that this film was coming to being. And all of a sudden, people were approaching me. I had a writer approach me, and he had a tape recording that he had done of an interview with John mm -hmm. Howe for a magazine article that he did. And then I had contacted uh, one of Howe's nephews, and he had a different interview from 30 years prior. Right. And so I took those four interviews and really dissected them. What was he talking about? 
did it tell a, was it a linear story if I cut and pasted those things together? And it was a pretty substantial piece of the documentary, two thirds of it anyway. And I decided there was enough there where he could narrate his own story. And um, while it's not a traditional way to make a film, usually it's all scripted before. Um, then I knew what questions to ask of the different people. I went to those people that Mrs. Howe told me to interview. How did they fit into the story? What, what questions had John already answered and what questions were still holes in the right. story? And so I'd ask those people those questions. And I, as a filmmaker, you learn to, you have to write your scripts, you have to do all that. So I, I wrote the questions of them in ways that they could tell their stories. Mm-hmm. And so John was telling his story and a client was telling their story and Mrs. Howe would tell the story from her perspective. And it, it, it forms a tapestry in and yeah. of itself. Yeah. No, you did that really well. For the unfortunate folks at home who are just now learning about it, uh, this program is recorded, and Rob's presentation is going to take place a little bit later this afternoon. So if you have not uh, seen Rob's presentation, sorry, folks, you missed it. But there's very good news. There's an excellent website. It's www.johnhowmovie.com. And we'll link to that in the description below, where you can get some great information about uh, this project. I believe they can also purchase a copy of the DVD or the Blu-ray there on the site. And you would recommend the Blu-ray, I believe. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's what we're showing today, the Blu-ray. Oh, outstanding. Yeah. Yeah, then it'll be well worth it. And the library also has copies of it. So folks can come in and check it out. What a great combination. As, as we thank you so much for, for coming in today, are there any other insights you want to leave us with about John Howe? Look at the drawings. You, you, you can get lost and um, mesmerized by the, the amount of creativity. Um, it's, it's just stunning. And yeah. I know there's still, what do you think, just real quick, what do you think his legacy will be? I mean... I think it'll always be overshadowed by Mr. Wright. Yeah. I think anybody that wants to look beyond the surface will realize that uh, John Howe was, in some ways, part of the balance. I think several of the apprentices together formed a counter or a balance to Mr. Wright's boisterous and, and yeah. um, tumultuous personality. And He was kind of a mad genius to me. I mean, that's what he impresses me as Wright, I mean. He, uh, I... I I think we're a little distant. I mean, he was yeah. born four years after the Civil War, so I think his person... Yeah. He was very fatherly to his apprentices. Was he? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, and John Howe was at the center of both that architectural aspect and the balancing of his tumultuous personal life. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, I've had more than one client tell me um, <laughs> in the course of getting their houses designed... Uh, that they went to John, and when something was too far, um, <laughs> Mr. Wright was being too strict about a particular thing, they would go to John, and he would draw it the way the client wanted. And let's face it, 
right. the checks are cut by the client. You've got to do a certain amount of uh, bending to your client. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I think there are some Frank Lloyd Wright buildings that wouldn't have happened without John Howe. Yeah. All right. Rob, what a gift you've given us. I, it's such a pleasure to, to sit down and talk with you. For the folks at home who can't see, if you could see the passion in this man's eyes as he discusses this project, it, it would alter you. Thank you so much for giving so much of your life to bring this project to fruition. You've done a great service to us, to the community, to the cause of history itself. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. What do you think, boss? You want to do this again sometime? Sure, let's do it again. Well, let's do it maybe yeah. next year sometime. We'll yeah, do a, next let's <laughs> do another podcast next year. All right, sounds good. Yeah, I have I to agree. Like getting, I, I always like getting together with you, Chuck. Well, I enjoy it too. And you always bring in such great people to the <laughs> table. It's a lot of fun. Well, right. then we will wish everybody uh, who's listening uh, a successful end to 2019 and best wishes for 2020. So for Ted Stark, I'm Chuck Backus, hoping you've enjoyed this episode of TED Talks, the official podcast of the Menominee Public Library. We look forward to seeing you next time.